If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts. <clears throat> the book of Acts is the second volume of a two-part work. You know, Luke-Acts, they're both written by the same author, Luke, who was a physician, a co-worker, and a co-traveler with the Apostle Paul. The traditional name for the book you may be aware of is the Acts of the Apostles. That's a bit of a misnomer. While the apostles do show up in nearly every single story of the book of Acts, the unifying theme of the book, actually Luke gives us a clue at the very beginning, what is the unifying theme, where he writes that in my previous volume, O Theophilus, this is the the gentleman he's writing to, uh, I wrote about the things that Jesus began to do and teach. Now you hear that, you say, began to do and teach? I, I thought the gospel of Luke was pretty much all that Jesus did and taught. And Luke is correcting that right, right here. No, he says, it's only what began. The second volume, this second volume, is what Jesus continues to do and teach by his spirit through the church. Um, it's a story of how Jesus leads his people by the spirit out into the, the world to invite all nations to know him as king. It starts in Jerusalem and then the next concentric uh, circle Judea and Samaria, where there were a large number of non-Jewish people, and then out into all the nations and the ends of the world. So instead of titling it the Acts of the Apostles, it really should be titled the Continuing Acts of Jesus by His Spirit through His Church, which when you think of it in those terms is uh, very exciting because it means that he uses people like us to fulfill uh, this plan. It's also if we're being honest, it's, it's kind of daunting too, <laughs> particularly in the cultural moment that we presently live. One of the words out there that you hear spoken about these days, some people talk about social fabric or social trust. You've heard maybe social trust. What is Social trust is essentially the confidence that we have in other people to do what they ought to do most of the time. So for instance, a simple example, if I go to a Mexican food restaurant, the, I trust the proprietor to serve me food that is not tainted. The proprietor trusts me to not skip out at the end of the meal without paying the bill. Social trust. Social trust is this generalized faith that we have in the, in the people of our community or our country that we will generally act properly. And it's predicated on several assumptions. One assumption is that we we share, generally share the same moral values and generally share the same sense of what's the right thing or the wrong thing to do in a given situation. It can be something as simple as two lanes of traffic merging into one. The, The social norm that we generally share or we should share is that when you come into a situation like that, we'll alternate. This, this side will go first, then this side will go second. Well, it, it'll come as no surprise to you for me to state that we're becoming a nation of very little social trust, of a very frail social fabric. We don't trust others to follow the norms. We don't trust others to tell the truth or to act fairly. You can't, in that illustration, really trust that that one lane of traffic, 10 cars won't push ahead uh, and completely ignore you. We've lost our trust in each other. We've lost our trust in institutions. I bring this up at the beginning of the sermon because the absence of social trust makes our Christian witness in this world so much more difficult, doesn't it? 
I mean, why should somebody listen to us when we're making these like wide, huge, life-changing uh, affirmations about the nature of the world and the king of the world, Jesus Christ? I mean, those are bold claims. Why should I trust you when, when I can't even trust people to alternate in traffic? It poses a very real challenge to bearing Christian witness in the, this, uh, the next decade or so. And we're going to talk, uh, talk about that this morning, among some other things, as we start out. I'm so always so excited to start a new book <laughs> as we start out the book of Acts. In my former book, former volume, Theophilus, the gentleman to whom uh, Luke writes, we'll talk about him later in the series, In my former book, I wrote about all the things Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while while he was eating with them, he gave them this command— Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift, the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times and dates the father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After this, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and the cloud hid them from their sight. When they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, uh, they were looking up intently when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, the Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. So this would, would be the upper room where the Lord's Supper was celebrated. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and uh, with his brothers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, our Father, we are truly truly grateful for for your word. We pray that it would be to us life and health and peace. Uh, We lay our hearts before you. We we lay them bare uh, before you and ask that you would, in your mercy, mold them and shape them in the ways that you are so pleased to do, filling them with your grace, your truth, and your love through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Most people who read verse 6, if you want to look back at, at verse 6 with me, they strongly criticize the disciples for the question they ask Jesus. And in fact, when I preached this passage back in 2011, I think it was, very few of you probably were here back then, I was critical of Jesus too. I mean, they say, Lord, when are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? 
And it sounds like a sort of take care of our own tribe sort of question, a narrowly ethnic focus on national Israel. After all that Jesus had told them, after he had given them the Great Commission, how could you guys blunder it this badly? I think that's a misreading of the passage. After the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what would they expect would be the next step? Like, what, what is his plan? What is his next play? I think it was perfectly reasonable for the disciples to think that Jesus' next major move would be to go into the temple in Jerusalem in all of his, of all of his glory, in his resurrection glory. And there in the temple, he would, I mean, the national center of Israel, the center of, of her whole life, there he would begin to restore Israel, to fix her, to purify her, to restore her to her true uh, glory. And then in so doing, he would look from there to branch out and fix the nations. There are a lot of Old Testament passages that kind of suggest this, that this was the messianic expectation. For instance, the prophecy of Isaiah 2. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains, and it will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. For he will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for for many peoples. I mean, kind of things that you would expect the, the new king to do. He's going to do it in the temple in Jerusalem. A grand David 2.0 a Davidic kingdom, but so much better. Uh, that, that would be an understandable conclusion that they would have reached. But what is Jesus' plan? Guys, we're not waiting for them to come to us. We're going to them. Guys, you are temples yourselves. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the temple, God's temple, is going to go out to them. We're not waiting for them to come to us. So much, of the fa- so much has been made of the fact that these Galilean fishermen and tax collectors were such a ragtag crew. I mean, who could have ever expected these guys, of all guys, to be the ones who turned the world upside down? It can only be explained by the singular fact that this was Jesus' plan. And this was, was all of Jesus' work. Because this, these are the continuing acts of Jesus Christ through his spirit by his spirit through the church. And Jesus and the spirit are doing it all. Verse 11. Let me grab my water. Sorry. Verse 11. I find the question that the angels ask these guys in 11 rather amusing. Why do you stand there looking up into the sky? Oh, I don't know. Maybe it's because Jesus, our friend, just levitated to a certain altitude and disappeared behind a cloud of glory. But that's not really what they're asking, is it? The implication is, guys, you're looking up at the sky. You've got better things to do, more important things to do. Hey, boys, you have been given an assignment. Better go get ready because in a couple of days, the Holy Spirit will uh, fall upon you. The assignment, the assignment that Jesus gave them 2,000 years ago, it is the very same assignment that, that we have today. We are to be his witnesses. We are to witness to the fact that Jesus of Nazareth died for our sins, 
was raised from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father. Uh, This is the Christian's calling until the Lord returns to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth about, about Jesus, about me, he says. To tell it in your own words, to tell it with your own life, to tell it in grace, in truth, and, and in love. It's the same, challenge, it's the same um, assignment that we have, uh, that they had. This means, of course, that Christians should talk to their neighbors and colleagues and friends and, and family members about the reasons that they believe in Jesus. Unfortunately, that is happening less and less in America. A recent study commissioned by the Lutheran Hour Ministries found that since 1993, the number of Christians who said, quote, I believe every Christian has a responsibility to share their faith, and the number of Christians who said they actually do share their faith has, become, has dropped precipitously in the last three decades. What that means is that we're in a, in a moment where There is tremendous need to share with other people uh, the good news about Jesus Christ. And yet, there is less and less a willingness to do so. Why is that? We talked about uh, social uh, trust. Three other things. Number one, Tim Keller points out that first, talking about the Christian faith is more complicated today. A generation ago, you could assume that the vast majority of people generally believed in... uh, the things that you did of a sort, they believed in a personal God, an afterlife, moral absolutes, the reality of their sin. Most people had a general respect for the Bible. We, we shared many of the same data points, or you might call them dots. And what Christian witness, I don't know, three or four generations ago was, was merely to, to show somebody the, the dots and connect the dots for them and help them by connecting the dots, show them their personal need for Jesus Christ. I mean, that is not today. We are so far away from that today. We can't assume that any of these basic ideas are common knowledge or commonly acceptable. So to talk about faith, it now entails working much harder to even establish what are the dots. Secondly, and kind of building on this, there was a guy, and I can't remember his name, he wrote an essay on what he called three different uh, cultural uh, attitudes toward Christianity. He called it positive world, neutral world, negative world. And what does that mean? Well, he dates positive world would be America up into 1994. I'm not too concerned about the actual dates. I'm just concerned mostly about the idea positive world is to be seen as a religious person and one who exemplifies traditional Christian norms, that was a social positive for you. Christianity was a status enhancer. It it could help you be more successful at work, land new clients, get new projects. Likewise, if you didn't embrace traditional Christian norms, it could hurt your job prospects, certainly hurt your political career, And the people in your community would tend to think less of you. That's positive world. Neutral world, he dates from 1994 to around 2014, 2015, right up to the uh, Obergefell uh, same-sex marriage decision of the Supreme Court. 94 to 2014-15, Christianity was seen as as a generally socially neutral attribute. It no longer had a dominant uh, status in society, but to be seen as a religious person uh, 
It's not for you or against you. It's more like a personal hobby that you may have. Oh, it's fine. If that's for you, good. If, if, if you don't do that, that's fine. Um, and many of the tr- traditional uh, norms of social behavior still remained intact in, in neutral world. Negative world is basically from the Obergefell decision right up a- until today. Or being a Christian is a social negative. It's especially a social negative if you're in a so-called high-status position. Christianity is no longer accepted as a good influence in society. It's no longer thought of as a good influence on individual lives. The flaws and sins of the Christian church are in the foreground of our culture, from the history of the church supporting slavery, to religious wars, to clergy abuse scandals, And of course, there is particular anger in the world today about uh, uh, Christians' traditional views of sexuality. Those traditional norms are expressly repudiated today. It must be said that it kind of depends on what part of the country you're living, how much you feel negative world. I would suspect that a Christian who lives in San Francisco feels negative world far more so than a Christian in Boise, Idaho. It probably also depends on the job that you have. Uh, Somebody who works in academia or in journalism would feel negative world far more strongly than, say, many blue-collar jobs today. But uh, on the whole, I think it's fairly accurate description of where we are at. We're at in negative world, and it's not going to change anytime soon. Thirdly, the, the third reason why we... We're seeing less and less Christians bear witness for Jesus in terms of evangelism. Younger adults, millennials, have grown up in an environment where they've been told repeatedly, no one has the right to tell others what to believe, so you shouldn't be trying to convert anyone. Even though that is a self-contradictory statement, because you are doing the very thing you forbid, telling other people what they ought to believe and how, how they ought to, ought to live. Nevertheless, it is a slogan with enormous, enormous cultural um, power. And it is the slogan that the overwhelming majority of kids uh, in our country have grown up with and believe. It's hard for younger Christians, even, not to be swayed by it. Barna conducted a survey in 2019, so just a year ago. A very interesting survey. 97% of Christians across four generations, millennials, Generation X, baby boomers and elders, agree with this statement. Quote, the best thing that could ever happen to someone is for them to come to know Jesus. Of the millennials, 47% of millennials, one out of every two millennial Christians, and a significant though less uh, lower percentage of even those other three generations, also agreed with this statement, it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share that same faith. You see what's going on. American Christians almost unanimously believe the best thing that could happen to a person is to meet Jesus Christ. And and a huge number of Christians today also believe that we should keep our mouths shut and not say a word about it to others. And why have I spent so much time on this? I, I just want us to, to be aware how bearing witness to Christ today faces like very significant roadblocks. I mean, these are going to be the very real challenges for Christianity in America over the next couple of decades. What would be up to it, up to the challenge? 
what is it going to take? I mean, okay, having already established what are the challenges, what is it going to take for us to faithfully bear witness to Christ in our, cult- in our place or in our cultural moment? One thing that immediately jumps out to me, and it, I mean, it's not rocket science, you're going to need courage. It's going to take spirit-empowered, powered courage. Uh, we're going to have to be willing to open our mouths. We're going to have to be willing to have other people think badly uh, about us. Um, it's going to take a lot of courage. And that is a theme that we'll see emerge in the book of Acts. Repeated as we go throughout the book. A very courageous men and women bearing witness to Jesus Christ in sometimes extremely hostile circumstances. Christian witness over the next couple of decades will require us to be those kinds of people. Secondly, it's going to take a lot of patience, a lot of patience, because it's not a simple matter of connecting the dots. As we said before, we don't even agree what the dots are. It's going to take a a lot of patience, patient conversations with people to even get to the point where we can agree on the dots. The other thing, and I think you're already aware of this, but something, something always to bear in mind when we're talking about the dots Dots today are not simply evidential issues. Dots for people are very, they're personal and emotional. We have one of the most emotivist cultures uh, that we've ever seen. Um, They're very personal and emotional. It's not like they're just weighing data like a scale. Um, So I just finished reading a book this week written by a PCA pastor in Nashville, Scott Sauls, and the title of the book is A Gentle Answer, Our Secret Weapon in an Age of Us Against Them. A Gentle Answer. I thought it was a very good book. It was it was balanced. It was it's worth your attention if you wish to read it. One of the chapters though starts out with uh, Scott talking about his dad, who was not a Christian. And he writes this. He says, for some people, for some people, it is hard to love Jesus for reasons that can be deeply personal and emotional. For example, my dad, my father, now in his mid-70s, bristles with something resembling a post-traumatic twitch whenever we bring up Jesus to him in conversation. You say, why is that so? Well, because he was raised in a church that would make most people want to be an atheist. The church's message was filled with shaming and scolding, with hellfire, with moral expectations that were impossibly high to, to reach and delivered from the pulpit in a fashion of do as I say, not as I do. The grace, love, and kindness of God towards sinners was rarely ever mentioned. And add to that uh, a verbally abusive and, and difficult mother whose private life was utterly incongruent with her public persona as a, as a virtuous woman you put that together and it's fairly unlikely a man like that is ever going to come to believe in and surrender his life to, to, to Jesus Christ. I mean, ever since my, my brother and I became followers of Christ, we've been trying to persuade dad that the portrait of Jesus he grew up with looks almost nothing like the Jesus of the gentle answer, the Jesus who actually is. But so far, even though dad is warm to our commitment to faith, our persuasive efforts in his case have been to no avail. And then he says to his uh, reader, I love this, he asks his reader, please pray that someday and somehow the truth will uh, break through to him. 
And I think you have similar kinds of stories with loved ones, with friends, with colleagues or neighbors whose hang-ups with Christianity, it's not just simply, did he, raise on the, did, he, did he raise from the dead on the third day or did he not? I mean, they are extremely personal. They come with, with deeply um, baggage-filled stories. And, and you have to recognize that. It takes patience and it takes sensitivity to the person. I wonder this, how many people have you ever met who came to faith in Jesus because a religious person or group of religious people scolded them for their morals, their ethics, and their lifestyle? Maybe a couple, but that's the rare conversion story. But there are hundreds of thousands of Christians who fell in love with Jesus because of the gentleness and the patience of Christ as expressed to them through other Christians who spoke truth to them, but yes, spoke it to them in love. I mean, love is always, always the essential ingredient. You must love. You must not be indifferent. You must truly love in your heart. It takes that. It takes courage, patience, gentleness, and always love. Many of us are familiar with the story of William, William Wilberforce, the great British statesman whose work in Parliament, he was almost single-handedly responsible for overthrowing the British slave trade. We know that part of his story. You maybe have seen the movie Amazing Grace, a great movie. We know that part of his story. Many of us don't know his conversion story. Wilberforce, at the age of 24, was this rising star in Great Britain. He, was, he gained a seat in Parliament at 24. Uh, he's shooting up the, the charts, so to speak. The very year that he gains a seat in Parliament, Parliament he decides that he's going to take a trip to the French Riviera. And he decided to invite a friend to go along with him, a former schoolmaster by the name of Isaac Milner. Isaac Milner was apparently a giant of a man. He was a giant physically, and he was a giant intellectually. He was an absolute genius. He was elected to the prestigious company of scholars, the Royal Society, while he was still in college. When they gave him his final exams, his professors decided not to actually grade his final exams because his exams were so far above all of the exams of his classmates that they didn't want to belittle him by giving him an A. (laughs) He's like, good grief. Uh, He held a chair at Cambridge in both mathematics and chemistry. So Wilberforce invites Milner to accompany him on this tour of southern France. Now, what do two men do who ride together in a carriage at a pace of a walking horse? What do they do for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles? They talk. They talk a lot. Wilberforce at this time was not a serious Christian. He may not have been a Christian at all. That's kind of debated. But Milner was. And Wilberforce was just shocked that somebody so smart as Milner would be so equally devout. One of the men in the carriage had a copy of a Puritan book called The Rise and Progress of Religion in the Soul. Wilberforce saw the book and he said to Milner, have you ever read this, ever read this before? Milner replied, it's one of the best books that's ever been written. 
So they agreed on their journey to read it and talk about it. As they traveled, as they read, uh, by the time that Wilberforce got back to London, he had all these kinds of new ideas about Jesus and Christianity spinning in his mind. Several months later, they decided to take another trip to southern France, and this time, instead of reading the Puritan book, they took with them, they both took their own copies of the Greek New Testament. <laughs> Pleasure reading. And uh, they read the Greek New Testament. Um, Wilberforce just keeps asking him questions, admitting doubts that he has, just long, cheerful conversations about Christianity and life. Wilberforce, at the end of that trip, he was a convinced he was convinced in his faith. He was also desperately fearful that if he became a devout Christian, he would have to leave his life, his career in politics behind. And so it was either, I'm not sure if it was Milner or if it was another Christian friend, they said to Wilberforce, why don't you go and talk to this pastor whom I know, his name is John Newton, (laughs) the former slave trader, and uh, see what Newton has to say about your conundrum. So Wilberforce goes and he talks to Newton and, and Newton says, you know, son, you better stay in politics because uh, you're going to serve Jesus there and you're going to change the world, which he did, obviously. There's one more part of the story. I hope this isn't rambling on too much, but one more part of the story that is interesting. After Wilberforce became a serious, devout believer, he felt a tremendous burden to share that with one of his closest friends, the then prime minister of Great Britain, William Pitt. He went to Pitt and he talked to Pitt about the reasons he believed in Jesus, the ways that Jesus was changing his life, you know, all of, he just bore witness. And then he said to Pitt, why don't we go to church together? There's this preacher who's in town who is very good and I'd love to go to church with you. His name is the Reverend Richard Cecil. Never heard of Richard, Richard Cecil, but let's go, let's go hear them one evening. So they do. And Richard Cecil gets up in the pulpit. He preaches what Wilberforce thought was a dynamite sermon, just a killer sermon. He couldn't wait to hear what Pitt thought about the sermon. They get outside the church and he's like, William, what did you think? <laughs> and Pitt's response, he, he replies, I hadn't the foggiest clue what that man was saying. <laughs> Now, I think there's several takeaways from the story, uh, at least for me. What is, what is going to be required of us to bear witness to Jesus are carriage rides. It's time, friends. It is time. And sadly, in our culture, and increasingly with uh, technology, uh, that's one thing we don't have a whole lot of, we're not very good with. It's time. Like time to sit down and really share life with and have like deep conversations with, read a book together with people who are are not yet convinced of Christianity or who may be very far from Christianity. Like where is the space in today's society for carriage rides? I mean, particularly when you have kids, it's like all your time vanishes. (laughs) If we're going to bear witness to Christ, we must have, we must, we must make, we must make time. I know that that's why some, um, in addition to getting a great workout, they decide to, uh, Christians decide to go be part of CrossFit, where they'll meet new people there. Um, They decide to get involved in their kids' schools PTA for the purpose of of meeting new people there, serving, but but yes, like striking up new relationships. We must make make new relationships if we're ever to spread the gospel to, to other people. 
The other takeaway, and I guess it's a little more obvious, is simply the fact that Wilberforce was made ready by the Spirit to hear. Pitt was not. And at the end of the day, it all depends on the Spirit. Like we don't go out into the world bearing witness to Christ thinking that it, it all depends on us. Ha! No. It all depends on the Spirit. Jesus is working. He works through us. But it's obviously the, the wind that blows through the branches that you see going here and there. You know, the wind being this metaphor for the Spirit. You know, you know not where he's going to blow. But you need to be present and make yourself available. I'll conclude with a metaphor that I heard about taking the next step of faith. I want you to imagine a man who is walking through the Alps late in the day when a great fog rolls in. The trail that he is on seems to narrow. The wall on the right side begins to close in on him. There is a sharp cliff, a precipice on his last side. The fog is getting very thick and very dark. It's getting very cold. He feels like it's going to be too dangerous to continue taking many more steps. He realizes he's in grave danger. When suddenly he hears a voice calling out from the fog and maybe behind him, um, can you hear me? I was trying to catch up to you. I, I saw that where you were headed and I saw the weather coming in and I was worried that you might be caught outside, stuck. Is that what's happened? And the guy says, well, yes, it has. I can't see anything. The voice replies, I've been hiking these mountains all my life, so I know this area really well. Uh, eight feet below you, below the precipice that you're on, there's a shelf. Behind it is a cave. You can go inside and shelter for the night. There you will be safe. But in order to reach the shelf, you're going to have to jump down upon it. And the man says, you have time for follow-up questions? (laughs) Are you sure that's where I'm located? And he says, didn't you... Uh, come past those three large protruding roots that are on the trail and you pass several trees a few meters back. He says, yeah, yeah, that's, that's where I'm at. Um, well, you're about eight feet above the shelf and you're going to have to leap. You're going to have to leap. And, you know, that leap, that leap we sometimes call the leap of faith. Uh, it's not a, it's not a, perfectly blind leap as as though there are no reasons for you to leap. It's a a reasonable leap. But when you bear witness to Christ, uh, to your your friends, uh, you realize that that you really are asking them to leap. You're asking them to like leap off an edge that that is underneath their feet and to leap into the arms of Jesus with hopes that he will catch them. Yeah, we are asking them to do that very thing. Um, and what's required of us is to know that it is the Holy Spirit who makes somebody ready to leap. <laughs> the very same spirit that was given to the apostles is a spirit that is given to us. When we are afraid to open our mouths, it is a spirit who gives us courage. When we are uh, irritated, it is a spirit who gives us patience. When we are uh, jaded, it is a spirit who gives us love. And it, it is we who must make the time. And he will make the people ready.
So I say to you, uh, why do you stand there looking up into heaven? In the book of Acts, you're going to hear the call that we have work to do. (laughs) We've got work to do. And we have every confidence that the work will be done well. Because these are the continuing acts of Jesus through his spirit in his church. It is a book that you might say is still being written. And indeed the same spirit of power that was given to them is the one that is given to us. Amen.